Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. We have a really special show for you today. Eric Schaefer is here. This is this is one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. I love his stuff. He's a writer, he's a director, he's an actor. He's done stuff in the 90s, the, the zero zeros, the tens. He's, he's been making films and TV shows for a very long time. I wouldn't be the filmmaker I am today without his work. Super influential on me. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Before we get into it though, if you like the show, support us, $2 per month, killthelionfilms.com. You're basically voting with your dollar for the show and the film studio. We make movies here too. Your support helps us do that. And now, Eric Schaefer. All right, Eric, good to talk to you. Hey, Cody, always a pleasure to talk to you. So just before the pandemic, I know you finished a new movie that was called God the Worm. Now it's called Before I Go. That was going to be released at some point recently, and uh, I guess everything got pushed back. Can you tell me a bit about when we can expect to see that or what, what the status of it is right now? Yeah, yeah. So it's so, you know, this last year and a half, I'm sure for everyone, it's kind of like a time warp. Like, so I'm trying to think we made it in May of 2019. So by the time we edit it and we're, we're ready to go out and try to get in festivals and all that stuff, it was January of 2020. So that's when everything started happening, February of 2020. Right. So things got put on hold. We, we finally found a home for it, which we're really happy about. And they're going to release it. And hopefully this summer, they're talking about doing VOD, probably won't go into theaters, uh, which I have mixed feelings about. All of my films have always gone into theaters, and I've always, even if they've been tiny releases, I've always just felt really strongly that, you know, movies in their original form should be seen on a screen, like even if it's one screen for a week. Um, so there are no plans for this to go on in theaters, but maybe we'll do a screening somewhere. But VOD this summer, and then all the sort of usual suspect platforms to follow in the months after in the fall. Awesome. So the lead of this film is Annabella Sciorra. And I feel like she's one of those actresses I would have like assumed you worked with in the 90s because she's just she was so ubiquitous back then, just like you were. Is she somebody you'd wanted to work with for a while? You know, it's a, it's a good question. She um she has been sort of a steady like I've been lucky to to make films and God, it's like it's like uh, you know the the '90s, the 2000s, the the 2010s, and now the 2020s. So luckily, I've, I've that sounds scary to me because it means I'm really old. But I'm is that four decades? '90s, aughts, teens, twenties. All right, so I'm going into my fourth decade of having movies in in every decade, which is I feel very grateful and lucky for. Um, I hadn't really come. Up, I mean, I knew her very well and always really admired uh, her work, but. So when I got a chance, you know, when she was uh, someone who was available and really loved the script, I was excited to work with her. But our paths actually hadn't crossed um, before then, which is odd because we're both at that point, you know, we're New Yorkers. So whose whose paths did you cross in the uh, let's say in in the nineties? Because people ask me like you know if because I, I I make films obviously, and uh, I have friends that make films as well, and some of them in New York City, and people kind of just always assume everyone knows each other. Were there, were there any other filmmakers uh, in the 90s that you were coming up with that you knew, or was it kind of just like everybody doing their own thing? Because I know from my own experience, like, I'll, I'll tell a quick story, actually. You and I, we discovered that I made Ramekin like a couple blocks away from where you live. 
And there's another piece of that story that I discovered later, which is that I made friends with this kid, Joel Haver, who's making movies now. Um, he did a movie, by the way, called Pretend That You Love Me that is so up your alley and so like your your vibe, your everything, you just really dig it. And he he made that movie and a bunch of other stuff two blocks away from there. So there's this weird spot on the Upper West Side. I'm not going to give away the exact locations, but <laughs> there's this weird, like almost like a Ghostbusters-esque like thing where it's just this congregation of energy and, uh, you know, on the Upper West Side that like stuff is happening. But I didn't know he was doing that stuff. He didn't know I was doing that stuff a couple blocks away. And now we're, we're, we're tight and we, you know, we, we both make movies and stuff. But like, what were the kind of peripheral filmmakers? I know, obviously, Annabelle Sciorra, she worked with, uh, you know, Noah Baumbach in the 90s. What, what was the energy like in the 90s in, in New York City as a filmmaker? Well, it's actually a great story. I'm glad you told me that. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting that, that that vibe is going on up there. Um, in the 90s, it's funny. People ask me that. And I, I was so and always have been so myopic. Um, in a way, because since I write, direct, produce, and and most of my films act in them too, uh, the last few, couple I haven't. There has to, for me, there had to be these kind of blinders on, you know, just to kind of because if I open my myself up to the world of possibility, the possibilities were so bleak <laughs> that you could ever make a film, and, and it's very different. Well, it's very different now because of being able to make a movie on an iPhone, so the cost is so much less. But in the '90s. You know, there was no video. You had to make a movie on 16 millimeter to be taken seriously. So even though that was much cheaper than 35 millimeter, it still cost thousands of dollars. I mean, even if you did it yourself and you still had to just feed people, even if you're no matter how you cut it, you had to have a few thousand dollars at least. So I don't know. I just put my head down and, and I did. But I did ask for help. And there were these people. So there was the shooting gallery, which was Larry Meistrich and Nick Gomez and these guys that had this. This kind of, I don't I want to call it a film collective. I don't know what you would call it. It was a company. They made Sling Blade. And so I knew those guys and they were sort of really helpful in trying to just guide filmmakers. And I was like, can you help? And, and I, I don't know how we, we met a couple other young filmmakers and Donnie, my partner on My Life's in Turnaround, my first film that we made and it came out in 94. We came upon a filmmaker, I, I can't even remember his name now, but he, he said, I'll give you one piece of advice. Pick a date to start and don't move off it for any reason. Because like, like Brutus, like your best friend will come to you and tell you why you have to wait. Oh, we could get some more money in two months. There's an actress we could get in four months if we wait. And I, I took that to heart and have my whole career. And so we picked a date and we just gathered as much money as we could and we went. And so, you know, listen, we were lucky enough to get John, John Sales to act in the movie. Uh, I picked up Phoebe Cates in my taxi cab as a driver, and she was nice enough to have a chat with me, and, and uh, I, I got in touch with her and asked her to be in the movie. She said, yes. We bumped into Martha Plimpton, who was another Upper West Sider in the Broadway coffee shop, and I approached her and said, hey, we're making a movie. Will you be in it? So the only people that I kind of was aware of was that were these fortuitous kind of asking the universe, and it will, it will provide for you moments with established filmmakers and actors that sort of ended up helping us. But other than that, I, w I was never then, nor am I now, part of any sort of group of, of filmmakers, just because, not because I don't want to be, but I think just because 
I don't know, my personality out of necessity is I got to just kind of, uh, as I said, have these kind of horse blinders on for the goal. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I, it's it's very similar nowadays too. It's everybody's just focused on what they're doing so much that like the the non-doing stuff always takes a back seat. You just want to you want to create, you want to get stuff out there. Absolutely. So when you when you made your first film, for me and for people a little bit older than me, I know Clerks is always this kind of thing of like, oh, I saw Clerks, so I knew that I could make my own film or whatever. But you made My Life's in Turnaround like about a year or two before Clerks. What was the thing that like inspired you? Like, oh, I could make a movie. I can do this for for cheap. What pushed you forward in that direction? It was it was the shooting. It was Nick Gomez's first film. Was that Laws of Gravity? That's exactly right. Yeah, I love that movie. That's a fantastic movie. It's a really good movie. And so Laws of Gravity played at the Waverly on 6th Avenue and 3rd Street. And we went to it, Donnie and I. And this was a movie that purportedly had been made for $40,000. Now, we all know that just the blow up from 16 to 35 costs more than that then. So it wasn't ultimately a $40,000 movie. But, you know, whatever, who cares? To get it in the can could have been $40,000, whatever, whatever it was. It was purportedly like a $38,000 movie. So I remember thinking, I had been driving a cab for eight years at that point. I was 30 years old. I had, had, a, I had written a script that got into Molly Ringwald's hands, and I had written, actually, If Lucy Fell for her. She didn't end up making it, but, and then it fell apart, and I went back to driving the cab. So I had had this little skirmish with possible advancement of my career towards the end of driving the cab, but then I was back in the cab. So I'm 30, I've been driving cab for eight years, writing 20 screenplays in the 80s, trying to get a job, trying to make a movie. And finally, I saw that film and I said, I can do, it's exactly your question. I can do that. If that guy, if that movie can be in a movie theater in New York City for $38,000, I can scrounge together $38,000. So Donnie and I did that. I moved home with my mother at 30 and started saving a little money from the cab. We found a couple people, a father's friend, a business guy who loaned us $5,000. We, we went to, I don't even know how we got this money. We went to a, some kind of horse race in, in outside Baltimore because we knew somebody there and that, we met some rich guy that gave us 5000 I mean, th- you know, this was huge money to us. I mean, to get seven, we cobbled together $17,000 and that was enough we decided to be able to start shooting. And so, but that was the film that did it. Watching that was exactly that sort of moment saying, if this movie can be there for 38,000, that's something I can do. So of those 20 screenplays that you wrote while you were, while you were driving a cab, how many of those have made its way into, you know, becoming films of yours? Was it only of Lucy Fell that became one or? It's such a good question. Cause you know, in the, this was the eighties, right? So the big, it was the spec script boom. You were told like, Oh, you write a spec script, any good spec script, and you sell it for $2 million. Like that was the pitch, right? And I guess for some people that was happening. And so I was driving for 50 hours a week and, and writing for 40 hours a week. I was, I was um, you know, so I wrote all these screenplays and none of them got made except that we made my life's in turnaround. And then if Lucy Fell had already been written and, and it, as I said, it fell apart with Molly attached, but then we got it after my life's in turnaround came out, I was able to then uh, repackage it with Sarah Jessica Parker and Ben Stiller and Al McPherson. So that that's the only one that got made. And, you know, I've looked back at those at those scripts over the years because I thought, you know, in some ways I look back at, at that stuff I wrote and thought, God, I used to be a really good writer. 
maybe I still have a little bit of talent left, but I thought, wow, these are really good and inventive and can I repurpose? I mean, some of them certainly felt dated, but some didn't. And the, the ideas in them weren't dated, but, but I went back and I, I have never, there's a couple that still live in my heart, but not that I think necessarily will ever get made. But so no, out of those 20 screenplays, well, okay, I wrote a book, 20 screenplays, two plays and a book. I wrote a book of Wiry Spindel called Wiry Spindel, and that we did uh, then turn into a screenplay that became a movie. So none of the other screenplays became movies, but the, the book Wiry Spindel became a film. What you mentioned about looking at those screenplays again, it reminded me of, of something I saw in this Woody Allen documentary that came out a couple of years ago, where he, he basically, he'll like write down ideas for movies just on a scrap of paper and just toss it in a box. And he doesn't date them. He doesn't do anything. So he'll he'll reach if he's got to make a new movie. He reaches into the box, pulls out an idea, and and says, "Ah, uh, do I want to do that one?" And eh, not really, you know. Grabs another one, whatever. It's just like a mystery box. But they're all undated. So sometimes he's grabbing a piece of paper from like the '80s. Sometimes he's grabbing a piece of paper from like two days ago. Wow. It's just all the same to him. It's just all going into this same kind of random space and you know that i always thought that was a really interesting technique but you know maybe who knows some of those those 80s ideas could become things in the future you never know well yeah well that's what i'm saying that that some of the ideas i still love i still love a couple of the ideas from and then and then some of them have sort of been done by other people over the years and and sort of different kind of treading the area that i had thought of like one of my films was about a a rabbi and a priest that meet each other, um, like a romantic comedy. Uh, and then I think at some point, wasn't there a Ben Stiller movie where he's a rabbi and he meets a priest who might be Luke Wilson or Owen Wilson? Yeah, Keeping the Faith with, uh, I think, Edward Norton. That's right. There you go. So, so I remember, and I, I, I don't think I saw it, and I, I'm sure that plot-wise it was completely different, but at least you know the log line was similar. But then I met, the, one of the scripts was about a, a young... I kind of I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan, and I, I took a bunch of stories from real life basketball, like basically Mark Jackson of the Knicks kind of story, and I think it was Steve Kerr, the famous player and coach now, who when he was at Arizona in college, I forget his story, but then there was also a, a basketball player who had I think a blind father. It might have been Steve, and I, I forget who it was, but and. And I thought that was fascinating. The father would come to the to the games, and I don't know whether it's true or I invented it, that based on sort of hearing the dribble of his son at the foul line, he could tell how deeply he was bending his knees by the sound of the ball hitting the ground and then how it would hit his hands, and he could tell if the kid was going to make the shot or not. Stuff like that. Anyway, I put all these stories together, you know, and set it on the upper side about and sort of had a white sort of kid that lived in the projects and a black kid that lived, you know, in a well-to-do doctor's family and kind of how they meet and, and, and both their journeys together, rising up from children on the playground to both ending up in the NBA. So definitely a bit of a fantasy story for me being a short white kid wanting to play in the NBA. But um, there, there are things about that story that, that still really resonate with me and that I'd love to write about. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see a, a sports film from you for sure. Thanks. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought might be might be might be cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I'm not like a huge actual sports guy, but I love uh, sports movies. I, I feel like there, there's certain sports that just, you know, 
they they play a bit better on screen than just sitting and watching it like baseball like I, I there's so many great baseball movies but just to sit and watch a baseball game unless you're at the stadium it just can be you know kind of rough yeah I, I i hear you i mean I, i'm a massive sports fan i, I must say that in the the past few years having a two-year-old baby and and just sort of i don't know what's going on with the sort of how professional sports have gone the last few years it's i'm sad about the fact that i have far less interest in, in professional sports than i used to because they were such a, a seminal part of my i don't know my life but um but but to your point <clears throat> i think why probably sports movies are good one, ones done well are so great is because you know they're the most classic uh sort of thing we love about movies which is you know usually underdog stories you know and and the victory of the underdog you know whether it's rudy in football or hoosiers the basketball film about that tiny little you know high school that ends up winning the state championship i mean these are all and, and and a lot of them are based in some kind of truth so they sort of embody most of our desire we that feel like we're underdogs um being able to win once in a while so that's that might be why that's why i love good sports movies so a territory that you do uh, tackle a lot is relationships. A lot of your movies are about relationships and, uh, you know, the, the good aspects, the bad aspects, this, that, and the other. How do you, you know, because I've, I've done this with my own work. I've, I've kind of alchemized positive things, bad things from my own life into my work. And I found, you know, for my own, for my own stuff, you know, if I'm, watch, if I'm writing a movie about like a guy and a girl in a relationship, by the end of me writing the movie... I'm the guy and I'm the girl, you know, like it's, it's, there's so much of me in both characters that like, even if I set out to like capture somebody that I knew in my life or whatever, by the time I'm done writing it, I'm like, wow, I agree with like everything the, the other quote unquote character is, is thinking, saying, but can you talk to me about like how you've kind of alchemized things from your life into relationship movies and whatnot? It's funny. Um, it's a good question. It's funny how I like, I like how you said sort of the good things and bad things, this, that, and the other. I think this, that, and the other is probably like, there's a lot of really important stuff in there that sort of is the whole relationship, of, you know, that, that we have with people. But, um, and I try to, you know, bad, I, I get the shorthand that you're, that you're talking about. I mean, I guess part of the feature of what I try to do in my life, emotionally, spiritually, and then in the films is, is try to not characterize difficulty as bad, you know, um, I think that's one thing that I a feature of, of, of how I talk about relationships and my point of view about them and myself and my challenges, foibles is not labeling them as, as self-shaming or bad, but just part of the human experience, you know? And so in doing that, I don't become a bad, I'm not a bad person, you know, and, or the other is not a bad person. We're just, we're acting and reacting from these complex experiences we've had that hopefully we're trying to to handle in a, in a better way now so that we're not reacting and running around in the world, you know, creating negativity. But so generally speaking, I do write from experience, you know, and so most of the relationships in my films, if not straight out of my life are, are very close to my own personal life. And it's interesting what you say about, you know, it's kind of like, I think what Freud said about dreams, right? Is that we're, we're, we're everyone in our dreams. So when you say that you end up in your films, at the end of the writing, sort of being everybody. I, I think that's probably true. I, I try really hard to come up with experiences that are different than mine to imbue the other characters with. So it doesn't all seem like one big extension of myself. I don't know that I'm not good at that. And so sometimes when people have read my scripts, 
at the reading level, producers, whatnot, other people, even if they're well-meaning, they'll say, oh, the voices all sound the same. Um, I'm like, well, one of my favorite writers is, is Aaron Sorkin, and, and you, you might be able to accuse him of that, that sort of thing, too. But hopefully in the characterization and the casting, in the nuances of character, which I think really is, casting goes a far, far away in helping that. The characters do feel like distinctive and different individuals. So are there actors that you've worked with that you feel like had a really great handle on your style of dialogue? Because I know Tarantino talks about how like, uh, you know, Samuel Jackson just really made his dialogue sing better than anybody he had worked with. And then Christoph Waltz kind of like also was somebody who just kind of just elevated what was on the page. Are there actors that you worked with that you feel just kind of like nailed what you were going for beyond your wildest dreams? Uh, you know, I think all all of them. I, I think one thing that I'm that I I don't know if if I have a a bit of an an eye, you know, once in a while for for casting. I think that's something that's really helped my films be successful for the people that have liked my films, and that I take pride in and really work hard at is casting. You know, so everyone I've cast in my films, I feel super lucky to have had and very proud of them, and they've all they've all nailed it. Like, you know, they've all just been been so good everyone in my films and so they've handled and i'm also a filmmaker that listen i'm not uh, sensitive or you know precious about my words most of the time as a writer for other actors right so it's like if they if something doesn't work in their mouth or in their brain that i've written then i'm like well well then let, let's figure out a way to say it in a way that makes sense to you that doesn't feel unclear or just not how you would talk you know it's very it's a very it, listen certain jokes require kind of set up in a punchline in a certain way. But again, it's very few times I've ever asked an actor to, to please just stick to exactly how it's written. And it's funny because Mar Martha Plimpton in my life's in turnaround said to me, because I thought, well, because I wrote with Donnie, I, you know, we wrote it all. I can just sort of say whatever I want because I wrote it. So I know what it is. And she was really smart. At one point she said, Eric, what you wrote is funnier than what you just said. So you should stick to what you wrote. And even though it was close, uh, she was totally right. So I will say that in, in, in this film, Never Again, that I made with Jill Clayburgh and Jeffrey Tambor in the early 2000s, Jeffrey, who's you know one of the funniest people alive, and is one of those guys that you can just have him read the phone book and you're, you can listen to him and laugh forever. He actually said to me, he said, you know, he was having not trouble with the words, but it wasn't necessarily, uh, we had to work a bit on, on some of the wording and the verbiage. He said, Eric, these are your words. You should play this part. I said, well, no, it's not, it's not a part for me. It's, it's a part for you. But anyway, so it's funny. And he ended up being brilliant in that movie. So it wasn't a problem, but that was the only time that anybody, anyone sort of suggested that maybe it sounded better coming out of my mouth. Yeah, that movie Never Again, by the way, that's that's kind of like a near annual Valentine's Day watching for me. That's just like, that's a movie I keep coming back to. Wonderful film. Jeffrey Tambor, one of my favorite performances from him is, is that film. And Jill Clayburgh, amazing as well. That film in particular, you know, it's a bit of an unusual romantic comedy. It's a lot older than we usually ever get from you know, leads in a romantic comedy. What was the genesis of that idea, that project? How did that come to be? Well, first of all, thank you for, for the compliment. I appreciate that. And it, it is a film. I feel sad about it. That's one of the films. Listen, my films are kind of obscure and, and, and out there and hard to find and don't just jump out at you. You have to look for them. But, but never again kind of leads 
unfortunate, that unfortunate race. I think, I feel like never again has slipped through the cracks. I don't know that it ever, I don't see it sort of on the platforms. I don't think they ever HD it. Um, you know, I sold it to, it was actually Focus's, one of first, Focus's first films when they, when they became, USA Films became Focus. But anyway, you know, I had been in a sitcom that, uh, <laughs> you know, I have this funny, these funny stories of like, listen, I feel very lucky and blessed to have the career I've had, but I've also had a couple near misses that would have changed the trajectory financially and, and otherwise uh, of my of my work life so far. One of them was I was in Mitch Hurwitz's sitcom before he made Arrested Development. He made a, a, a sitcom called Everything's Relative that starred Jill Clayburgh, Jeffrey Tambor, myself, uh, and a couple other actors. So I met Jeffrey and Jill working on it. It was four episodes. It made it to air on NBC, but then they didn't pick up any more. So I met them and I said, listen, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to write a movie for you guys, Jill and Jeffrey. And they both laughed like, haha, yeah, yeah. If we had a nickel for every time we heard that, but they didn't know that when I say something like that, I'm, I mean it. So like six months later, I, I sent them both a script and said, here's the movie. And they were like, wow, this is, this is great. We want to do it. So that was the genesis of, of that happening. And I, you know, and at that point, I guess, so 20 years ago, I was, I was 40. I'm almost 60 now. So I was, I was almost, I was almost 40. And I thought, you know, something that's really lacking are, are romantic comedies with the kind that I write, which hopefully have some depth and turn on a dime from, from funny to, to, to poignant. Um, we don't have anything like that, right? Fifties and forget 60s and 70s, but 50s, you have cute, the cute old people movies, you know, like Cocoon, but you don't have, and that's always about getting young again, right? But we don't have any really smart, dynamic, complex, sexual, sexy, well-done films, uh, not that many, uh, but for actors in their 50s, certainly not in America. I think Europe embraces people getting older um, and doesn't emasculate them or sort of take away their, their sensuality at all. In fact, they embrace it. Um, in America, that's not only an anathema, but also kind of disgusting to people, which is, 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 a, is a fucked up sort of uh, message that's sent out there. So I, I really wanted to, to do a romantic, sexy comedy about people in their, in their late 50s. Um, you know, there, there are some filmmakers that, that, that do it. Nancy Myers makes films about people that are older than 40. Um, you know, th those, are, those are Hollywood films, so I think they can only, by virtue of being Hollywood films and big budget films, be so daring and pushing the envelope that's not to say that they're good or bad but just you can only do so much on a on a studio movie that's going to be in three thousand screens so you know the sexuality in never again is i would ask jill because i didn't want to i certainly didn't want to be a a white 40 year old guy writing for a 50 something year old woman and i want i want it to be authentic so i would run everything by jill and say is this how you know in the scene where she's describing to her 250 Carol, played by Caroline Aaron and Sandy Duncan, just brilliant, her two sort of best 50-year-old friends, and they're talking very specifically about her first sexual encounter with her new boyfriend. You know, I wrote it pretty straightforward, and I said, is this, you know, is this how you would talk to your girlfriends? And she said, absolutely. And I had women and men in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who watched that film who would come up to me uh, sort of with tears in their eyes saying, first of all, thank you for making a movie for us, and how do you, how do you write for a 55 year old woman and i and I, it's my answer to to the question of how do i write for a 22 year old transgender woman like in boy meets girl how do i write for an african-american 40 year old in mind the gap who's 
who's sad that he's losing his family and tries to commit suicide. You know, it's it's because the one thing that every good character has in common and that all audiences want is the human condition of wanting love and being afraid we're unlovable and afraid we're not going to get love. And so you put that in any body character, cross gender, cross race, cross religion, and, and you get a character that you can identify with. Very well said. And um, also a very a small role in that movie, you know, and this isn't a pun, but uh, Peter Dinklage is amazing in that film for the scene that he's in. And, um, you know, obviously now he's like the hugest thing ever with Game of Thrones and whatnot. What, w- what was he like uh, when you were working with him? What was that, the energy of that scene? He was so good. You know, so he came into audition for the part and um, and he was amazing obviously. And so he was just such a lovely human being. And, you know, and he, and he did the part and, you know, for those listening who haven't seen the movie, it's, you know, it's Jill Claper goes on a, on a blind date, like an internet date. And, and she doesn't realize that it's a, that it's a little person. And, and so Peter shows up and he's like, you know, handsome and smart and suave and everything that he is. And, uh, basically Jill in that scene acts like a ditz and, and, <laughs> And Peter's character says, you know, nice meeting you, but I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. Good luck. And, uh, and then he comes back later in the film, too, in a really cool way. But anyway, so Peter was great. And it's funny, I've, I, you know, I do yoga down I, when I was living in New York um, on the, in the village. And I think Peter might, might have lived down there. And I, I bumped into him in like a juice place. This was like a couple of years ago when he was like full on Game of Thrones. And, uh, you know, just said hi and didn't even know if he'd remember me and and he was super gracious and lovely and said of course and we had a nice little chat and so that's always nice to bump into someone who's gotten tremendous success since you worked with them and and they're still just as as nice and personable and down to earth as they were when you first met them so that was that was really nice so you know i mentioned you know i watch never again every couple of years as a as kind of a ritual I have another ritual that like I I haven't had the uh, opportunity to do as much as of late because I've been in a relationship for you know many many years but there are two movies that I kind of make a girlfriend watch when we're just starting going out just not she doesn't have to like them I just need to see what the reaction is per se uh, one of them is Buffalo 66 one of my favorite movies ever Vincent Gallo movie from right. mid 90s I adore that movie the other, the other movie is Fall, your film from 1997. And those two movies, I just need to see, you know, what the reaction is out of a person if I'm going to be in a relationship with them. It's just this, it's just a thing that I would have to do. That, that's a movie that has a, a huge cult, like very devoted following. Yeah. It, it strikes people to their core. It's, it's just... When I saw that movie, that was my first film that I'd seen of yours. My my sister turned me on to your work. She was like, "You gotta watch this movie," and I watched it, and I was just blown away. It was it was like nothing I had really seen before, and that's a movie that you know it's when that was out of print, people were paying like two hundred, three hundred dollars for the DVD of it, and then it luckily it went back into print again. I don't know what the status is right now. Who knows with these things? But it's it's a movie that just that has affected people so deeply and i'm sure people you know come to you and they're like oh my god fall or whatever what what did that movie mean to you and where did the writing of that come from what what place were you tapping into because clearly it's it's tapping into something that a lot of people needed or or do need or just needed to see on screen well thanks thanks again for, for for all those kind words cody um 
you know, I'll just go backwards a little bit. It, it, it actually was, and you know, you could find it on on all the platforms until until May, and then some business things changed over. And now I'm in the process of. So it's it's. I think you can buy the DVD on Amazon for for not a lot, but but it's gonna end up sometime in the next six or eight months getting back on all of the the streamers. So it'll be easier to find. Um, you know, people ask me like, of all my films, what's my favorite one? And I say truthfully that they're like children. You know, I only have one, but I can imagine having one that they're all my favorites in different ways and for different reasons. But, but then when pressed then people say, well, you know, come on, you got to pick one. I, 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 I have to say I would pick fall, you know, and if I, if I could only keep one or something, not that I watch my films after I make them, but it would be that one. And, you know, I made that film, you know, again, that was straight out of a love affair that I had had. And so that film, you know, there, there's some things that have been changed, you know, names and places have been changed to protect the innocent, but, but it was pretty much straight out of, of a love affair I'd had. And so the movie, you know, and I'm not a poet, you know, um, and I've never tried to be, but I did write some poetry to that person I was in love with and sent it to her. And, and that became the poetry in the movie. So, you know, that film was just, it was something that came straight out of just a, a deeply, deeply profound, a beautiful relationship that I had had with somebody. And, you know, I guess it just, I don't know, the soundtrack, you know, I mean, I'm just so grateful to all the musicians that let me use that music and, and, and the score. And it just was one of those things that came together, I think, in a, in a way that was just that really worked. And I get the people that enjoy, but it's like all my films, but the one thing that I, I do feel most proud of in my work uh, and for the people that like it and, and listen, Many, many people really don't respond to my work. And, and I think it's very polarizing, my work. It's either you really seem to dig it or you really, really don't. And I think that's because I am touching on issues that, that feel very human. And, and it's, it's, such, it's more than cosmetic. It's not like, ah, I don't think that guy's funny. You know, it's like people wouldn't be as passionate one way or the other if it was just that. Ah, that story wasn't that good. You know, it would just be sort of these middle-of-the-road reactions. But I think it touches on people because they really, really don't want to look at themselves and they're so scared, disgusted, whatever it may be about parts of themselves instead of embracing them as, as human and okay, even if they might want to change them. And then on the other side, people that celebrate that and go, wow, I have a kindred spirit in, in these characters in this filmmaker because, wow, I'm like that. I didn't know that as a straight man, I'm allowed to have fantasies that are other than straight. And that doesn't make me in any way... I don't know. And it, nothing's wrong with that. Or I sit and cry and, or I sit and wait by the phone for a girl to call and all, all these things that maybe are not sort of thought of as in, in a box of masculinity or maleness. And so for that film, I get people just a, across the board of age, gender, uh, race that, that seem to embrace that film. Young people, people that find it now people that are 75 and they'll just say, oh my God, I really fall was really, and, and, and I have to tell you, I appreciate it, but you're not the first person that says it's, it's in some way a test watch for people that they get involved with. So I think that's really cool. And of course the, the sequel to fall after fall winter, um, from I think around 2011, I know you you had planned to do one of these movies every 10 years. And I have to say that that kind of inspired me as well. My first film, Shredder, 
I did a, a sequel to called Strummer uh, about a year ago, 10 years later in the, the story of this character. And the reason I did that was because I, I saw how effective and interesting it was that you did it with fall and then after fall winter. And it just kind of, it was one of those things where like, I didn't force it. I just kind of ended up having another romance story surrounding music that I could tell again. And it just kind of worked out perfectly. And like, if I do another one in 10 years, you know, I'll do it. And if I don't have another story, I'll just do something else. But are you still going to, you know, do maybe after winter, spring, or is, is that something you want to do? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I actually put them, we're going to put them 15 years apart. So fall was 1997. After fall and winter was 2011 or 12. So that's like, I guess, 15 years. And then I was going to do, because I wanted to spend 60 years of, of this character's life, right? So if he was 30, 45, 60, 75, if I got the math right. So I, then I, just the other day, I, it's funny you should ask, I was thinking, wait, because time flies. It's a little scary. I was like, it's a bit, it hasn't been 15 years yet. And I thought, no, 2011 and 15 is 2026. So there's still four years till then, uh, or whatever it is, five years. So my feeling is like, I'll, I'll be honest, part of me really likes acting in, in, in my films. I've never wanted to be an actor in other people's films except here and there. Um, but I'm feeling less and less like wanting to be in my own films. That's why I haven't been in the last couple. So then I think, well, could it still be fun for me to maybe be in that in one in four years? And it's just like you. I feel like you. If I have, if I'm burning to tell the story of this character, uh, I do think it'd be really cool as a, I hate to say as a lifetime, but to have four films over 60 years, I think would be really, well, it'd be over 45 years, but about 60 years. I think that'd be really cool. A couple of people have done it. You probably know better than I. I think a man and a woman and then a man and a woman 20 years later. And then there was another French series, I think, of colors, red, blue, black, you, you, you probably know these sites. So I think some people have done it. And I think um, before sunset, after sunset, and I don't know if there's a third one. So other people have done it, but not that many. So, but then I thought maybe if I don't want to be in it, I could still do like the Godfather thing, right? Where the sequel flashes back. I think it's a sequel, maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, they, they go back to him as in his 20s. So I thought maybe I could do that, that if I really don't want to be in it in four years and I have a, a story to tell, we could do spring would be uh, before fall. So maybe it's him in college or something. So the answer is yes. I still have an interest in doing it. But like you, I'm going to wait and see whether it's, you know, these days, it, that's why I waited to have a, a baby until I, I was in my 50s. I always knew. I love kids. They're the, the conduit to all things, most profoundly spiritual. But I always knew I wanted to do it in my 50s because I didn't want that to compete with my burning desire to, to make films. And I felt like, you know what? In my 50s, if I'm lucky enough to have done it, either I would have never done it or I would have done it. And not that I don't want to ever make a film again because I do, but I wouldn't have that burning like if I die today, it'll be like this big regret I never did it. You know, I've made 10, this is my 10th film now. I've had five TV series of over, you know, a couple hundred episodes, hundred episodes. So, but I will say that having the baby in my fifties, it's so much work and it's so hard now to make films um, and get them out there that it does have to be a, a, just a burning zeal to want to make a movie for me right now. So if I have that again in four years from now, then yeah, I'll make another one. I mean, who knows about them 15 years from now? Uh, at this point, I'm just praying to God I, I can stay alive that long. 
I think that's a great idea. The the thing of going backwards, possibly because it's you know it's seasons in life, and and seasons don't aren't beholden to a particular year. So that's a really interesting idea. All right, so I know you have a hard out, but before we go, we do a little thing here called stupid questions. That's how we uh, end the episode. So are you are you ready to be asked some stupid questions? Yes. Are you kidding? I, I'm probably best. I'll be best at that. The best the best I will be is at answering stupid questions. All right. So some of these, I'm I'm kind of working in just smaller questions that I had for you, just in general. You know, some of them will be stupid. Some of them will be plausibly not stupid or whatever. But okay. So according to IMDb, right? You were in Adventureland, the movie Adventureland, as foreigner tribute band member. I've watched that movie a couple times. I've never spotted you in that movie. Is that a mislisting? Are you actually in Adventureland? Mislisting. So that's just been that's been on there for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> There's also as a, as a tangential part to that, which was not a stupid question at all, but a tangential B part of the stupid question is also if you search for me, I think whether it's on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, it's one of the streamers. If you just search for me, some other dude's picture comes up. <laughs> <laughs> like this other like kind of red-haired middle-aged dude who doesn't really look like me, his picture comes up. All right, so we and, have confirmation. Well, there'll be a trilogy. The, the, yes, there'll be a trilogy to the, the dumb question. And C is once I, I have to look because I have it up. Uh, I cut it out and put it in, on, in the, my bathroom. It's bathroom humor. And there was a Variety article about me doing three Sondheim musicals. And, you know, some people who lovingly give me a hard time for writing, directing, acting, producing, called me and said, what, now, now on top of everything, you, you got to start trying to do musicals? <laughs> and it was my picture, indeed. But there's another Eric Schaefer, uh, who is very famous theater director. And the, the article was about him, but they happened to put my picture on it. So anyway, that's the three big not me parts of that answer to that question. All right, so we solved that mystery. Yeah. Good good to know. So another IMDb credit that I want to ask you about is, you know, I've seen Boy Meets Girl a couple times. I don't remember you as a police officer in that film. Are you is there somewhere like in the corner of the frame where you actually are? Oh, come on, Cody. I, I gave myself a really good camera. It's much more than the corner of the flame of the frame. No, that's Spanglish. Spanglish people, I, I literally my voice is in Spanish. It's a big tracking shot of the lead character walking through a courtyard and and I'm a quote unquote rabid sports fan talking about sports and, and people are like, I saw you and then I'm like, no, you heard me for two seconds. That's that corner of the frame. But no, in Boy Meets Girl, there's a scene, which is one of my favorites, where this really sketchy pedophile like approaches um, the lead character in a flashback when she's a like a 10 year old girl. And the pedophile and, and, and the transgender girl as a 10-year-old flashes this sketchy pedophile and then screams police, police at this pedophile and the pedophile starts running and I'm eating a donut and drinking a cup of coffee and chase the pedophile down and tackle him. All right. So I, I miss that. I, I've been <laughs> remiss in my Eric Schaefer fan duties, but I'm in a little uniform. I have a cop hat. That one. Go back and watch that scene. Yeah, that's on me. That one's on yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So a couple other things I want to ask you. You know, you did a great show. I can't believe I'm still single. It's it. You can't find it anywhere. You can find the first season like on DVD out of print. The, the other two seasons were so funny. So great. Is there any where if I wanted to steal these these episodes, you know, is there is there somewhere I can go to 
to to break in to to find these these episodes to uh, rescue them and put them on the internet because you know I, I know somebody I'm not going to say who but uh, somebody rhymes with Cody Clark Bodie Blark or whatever <laughs> put starved your wonderful show starved online very recently if a Bodie Blark wanted to uh, break into a building or something and rescue episodes of I Can't Believe I'm Still Single, would that be possible? Or do they exist somewhere? Yeah, you know, here's the thing. And, and I, I, I'm trying to, I, I hate that I have to, have to, but I feel like in the world we live in, it's a necessity. And I, I, I vowed that with you, one of the a friend and a person who's been such a supporter of my work and only is well-meaning that I wouldn't go down this road. But I think it's slightly I have to that the world we live in now, um, there's certain bits of my work that if if gotten out there, some people are offended by in a way that in this time of life, uh, it's it's dangerous, you know, and, and it's uh, it's a whole nother conversation for another time. But it, it is a reality of, of the world we live in. So to the end of your question is, you know, for the time being, they do exist. And I'd have to look through them and and let let Bodie Bodie Blark you know know which ones I I feel like could 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 get out there into the world. I, it makes me sad because I think a lot of people might like them if they if they resurfaced. But I also have to pay attention to to just the complex world we live in in terms of creative artwork that's out there and how it's viewed and what it does you know to the to the artist if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely, it makes sense to me. So another question. I've never seen a single episode of Two Something slash New York Days. Yeah. Is is there an episode I could watch somewhere in in the world? I, I've always been curious about this this sitcom you did in the mid-90s. And I just, for some reason, I've never been able to find an episode whatsoever. Okay, you know what? I actually, in digging through all my boxes and stuff and trying to somehow categorize all my digibetas and tapes and I actually have, I think, all of the episodes on DVD. So if you can wrangle up a DVD player, I will send them to you. I'm, I'm standing right, I mean, well, I'm sitting right in front of a, a massive wall of DVDs. You have no idea how many DVDs I have. It's insane. <laughs> okay, I'm going to send you all the DVDs because, um, yeah, and that's another show, you know, that we cast a young little known Portia de Rossi as, the, as my sort of love interest in that show. Um, so yeah, I'll send them to you. I'll send them to you. And I'd love, I appreciate you being interested in, and I think there's some very funny things in them. I, th- that's a show I haven't watched in a long time, so I don't remember a lot of it, but I think, I think that there's some fun stuff in it. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm super excited about that. That's, that's a show that's just, uh, it's, it's eluded me. I've, I've always been trying to track it down. Well, and, and anecdotally, they, um, you know, Fox wanted to change the title. It came out as two something. They wanted to change the name from Two Something to something else. And I said, how about the show formerly known as Two Something, which was an affectionate reference to, at that point, one of my favorite musicians who had changed his name from Prince to the, art- the artist formerly known as Prince. Um, and they said, no, we don't like that. So they did a contest, a change the name contest. And we got 12,000 entries. And so there was this like New York telephone book of entries. So in our downtime, Donnie and I would look through this book to look for, uh, and there were some very, very excellent and creative uh, Entries. One was uh, yuppie poser twats. That was one of my favorite. Another one was give them money for their second movie and they'll walk. I thought that was a really good one. And then they've they've settled on New York Days D-A-Z-E. God bless Fox, but uh, wasn't my favorite title for the re- for the redo. 
All right. Final stupid question. I know you got to go. You were on an episode of one of the weirdest shows ever to be on MTV called Oddville. Do you have any memories of being on that episode? Because uh, it, it was a, for those who are familiar, unfamiliar with the show, it was kind of like this weird variety vaudeville kind of like sideshow uh, talk show where there would be like people doing strange stunts and there would be like regular guests and whatnot. Do you do you even remember being on that? See, this is why you and I have a sort of a kindred symbiosis because for the listeners, they didn't hear when when Cody first started this podcast, he said, okay, I got to just check some technical things to so do the alphabet. And I did, I did A, B, C, D, E, F and said to Cody, I don't know whether if I can do the whole alphabet, I'm going to feel really good because at this point with my brain and the fried nature of my brain, I get scared that I, my brain doesn't work. I have Alzheimer's. But so I pulled off the, the alphabet. So when I pull things out of the ass of my brain, I feel really excited. So I, I didn't even remember anything to do with Oddville. You just mentioned it and something fired in the synapses of my brain. And I'm going to say that Tonic yes. was the band on my episode. Absolutely. Oh my Perfect. Oh my God. You got it right. Oh, my God. And I love Tonic. Great band. They were so great. So that's what I remember, is that I was on that show with Tonic. I haven't been able to find the episode. It's Apparently, it's episode six that you were on. Okay. And that's what I remember. I remember thinking, oh, cool. Tonic's on. So good. Yes. You got to you got to watch Tonic. It's a good experience. Um, and also, one more thing, I I want to say that I almost tracked down. There, there's a this is like deep cut, deep cut, like Eric Schaefer stuff. Because I know some people that are listening to this are probably going to be like super fans of yours that like just find the link or you know Google you or whatever. There's a there's an episode that you were on of uh, Conan O'Brien's show. That is kind of this is like so deep cut. I'm like this. I'm this is like heavily coded, basically, or whatever. But the the other super fans know what I'm talking about. I almost I found the guy who has it on tape, but he's it's like at his other house and he's too lazy to go get it. He it was this guy on YouTube. He uploaded a segment from that episode that was different from the segment you were on, and it was just like some small clip on YouTube. And so I contacted him. This was like years ago, but I was so close to tracking down that episode and it eluded me. But apparently it exists out there on a tape in somebody's, you know, basement or whatever somewhere. Interesting. Okay, so here's the the story of that. So I was on Conan. Donnie and I were on Conan for the first time for my life's turnaround. Uh, That went great. We loved it. Terrific. Then then I was like, fall came out and I was like, oh, let me go on Conan for fall because he was nice enough to have me on the show. So he, he said, he invited me on the show. And Chris Rock was going to be in front of me. And um, Conan had just changed the format from that one person leaves to the couch concept that, that you both stay out there on the couch. You don't just leave after your segment. So I knew that Chris Rock was going to try to bogue into my segment, like any good funny comedian would do. So he did a segment. I came out there and I started. And immediately Chris Rock jumped in and said, um, something about something and i said excuse me mr famous can i have my turn now and the, and, the, and i was being joking and but sometimes i joke and people that know i'm joking and the whole audience went like "Ooh!" oh and i said i'm sorry chris i'm just kidding and you you look really you, you look great because you had a nice suit on and i had my like agnes b shabby chic look and, and conan quipped back very funnily you know what you're giving him a hard time and you come on my show dressed like that i'm like excuse me Conan and Agnes B. And he said, oh, just be quiet and check the oil and fill up the gas or something like a joke that I look like a gas station attendant. And I thought it was all in good fun. And then um, 
Oh, no, I was on for Lucy Fell. That's what it was. My second film after my last one turned So then Fall comes out, and I'm like, oh, I'll go on my friend you know, Conan, who had me on twice on, my show, on his show. And he, and he said that he would never have me back again because I was so confrontative and, and something. So, so I was on twice. And then the coda of that story is um, I was with a woman for two years, uh, had a very sad breakup, and uh, was watching TV one night a month after we broke up. And Conan would do these skits, you know, where he did fake commercials. Like, so he was doing a fake commercial about a, a bed store in Houston or something. And so he was meeting with an, a real-life advertising company in New York to help make this bed commercial, fake bed commercial. And suddenly uh, I see that he's meeting with the advertising firm that my ex-girlfriend works for. And in his fact, meeting with my ex-girlfriend as an advertising firm person he's going to hire to do this fake commercial. And I miss it, immediately had kind of a sinking feeling. And then a week later, I bumped into my girlfriend in Times Square, my ex-girlfriend, and she didn't say anything about dating Conan at that point. But I said, why were you on a Conan spot? And she said, what does it matter? And then six months later, I read in page six that they were getting married. And they've apparently had a very nice, long marriage with lovely kids. So that's sort of the coda. And I, I'm, I'm happy for them. I hope that, you know, I hope that they're as happy as they appear to be. And, but it's, it just was a pretty crazy you know, occurrence. And I said to her, like, I saw you on a Conan skit and you know that like, he won't have me on a show. Like, why would, you're not an actress, you're an advertising. Why would you be on, on that skit? And I, to this day, don't know whether that was just an accident or what happened, but that's the complete Conan story. And I will tell you that I, again, looking through my boxes of tapes, I believe I might have an old VHS that is home to one of those two appearances. So I'll look. I'll look. I got I to gotta get this box. Yeah, I know. You need I, the box. I, I need, I need this. I, you'll just come <laughs> up. You'll come up and we'll go through it together because that'll give me incentive to actually do it. So we'll pick a weekend. You and your girlfriend will drive up to beautiful green Vermont and we'll go through the we'll go through the box together. But in lieu of that, I'll try to do it uh, before then because I'm sort of curious. I, you know, I look away like a car wreck at old stuff. Like I sort of don't want to look because I'm scared, but, but maybe, maybe I'll let you look because you'll be nice about it. Sounds good. Well, Eric, great talking to you as always. And uh, thanks for doing the show. And, uh, you know, happy rest of day. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thank you so much, Cody. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll talk soon and I'll get you all that stuff. Just text me your where to send it and, and you'll get a fun care package of ancient Eric Schaefer stuff. Awesome. Thank you all for listening. And if you like the show, killthelinefilms.com, $2 per month. Vote with your dollar for our existence. This show and the film studio, we make movies all the time. We love to support us doing that. See you soon.